Brooklyn Emerging Voices Fellowship is a literary mentorship that provides new writers the tools to launch a professional writing career. Emerging Voices is the most amazing program that allows the writers to develop. It's the opportunity to have my work in the world, to get to the truth of my writing, to know that what I'm writing matters. to the Pan America Emerging Voices podcast. This one, I think, is going to be good. Not that the rest of them weren't amazing, but this one's especially good for two reasons. The first is that we're trying a, a phone interview today, so hopefully the sound is where it needs to be. I'm closed up in my bedroom. And also because uh, we're focusing on actual sound, like the words that come out of your mouth. We are interviewing... Dave Thomas today. Hello, Dave Thomas. Hello, Amanda. How are you? I'm so good, and I'm so excited to have you with us. Um, maybe people can't tell because you're on the phone, but but you're a pretty famous guy. You're your famous voiceover actor, <laughs> right? I don't know about famous. No, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm probably sort of well-known, but um, people recognize my voice, but I'm certainly not famous. Come um, on now. If... Guys, if you've heard a Home Depot commercial, or if you ever watched the NFL or yeah, NASCAR, exactly. well known. you well known. you well know known. Dave yeah. Thomas. Talk to me about being named Dave Thomas and having to share that moniker with the founder of Wendy's. Has that been I weird have... in your career? Well, no. I mean, actually, it's, it was interesting. That came up a lot in the early part of my career. Interestingly, I, I raised a foster kid, you know, and he did a lot. Uh, his, his his daughter Wendy is uh, adopted, I believe. I had no idea. Uh, yeah, and um, so he he was a big advocate for for kids that were you know locked up in the legal system, lost their parents for one reason or another, and um, you know he just wanted to help kids, and so we kind of shared that. But there was a there was another Dave Thomas that we shared our moniker with too. And what did this and Dave was, Thomas do? That was the great comedian from Canada, Dave Thomas. How did I not know about this Dave Thomas? I, well, you know, him and um, Rick Moranis had a show, you know? Hey. Is that, um, are those the brothers? Was he the other uh, brother? I don't, don't remember. We'll have so. to look it up. I'm not sure. I mean, Dave Thomas was quite prolific, but he was primarily in front of the camera. And I got out of being in front of the camera shortly after I started my career because people started... Um, recognized me on the street, and I, it was very uncomfortable. You didn't like it? No, I, did. I just wanted my life. I kind of wanted to be left alone and wander around, and people would stop me and say, oh, you're the guy from that AT&T commercial. Would you talk to my kids about what it's like to be an actor? And, and I'm like, you know, it's 10.30 in the morning, and last night was a really rough night, and I don't really <laughs> like talking to people right now. I just want to buy an orange and go out. Well, it's interesting that you say, you know, you got recognized and, and the example you used was like, hey, can you teach my kid or can you talk to my kid about acting? Because what you've done for Emerging Voices for, I would say, probably close to a decade is is teach uh, more than a decade, now, more yeah, than a decade like now. Sorry, uh, is, is teach us how to perform our work in front of an audience. So yeah. you, you've stepped into that teacher's role really easily. Yeah, I, you know. Um, for many, many years, you know, right after I finally started working um, in, in voiceover, I mean, I, I worked for many years non-union, um, all the way back to the late 70s. Okay. And then in 95, I finally got an agent. And every agent I ever had begged me to teach 
voiceover to all of their clients. And I refused um, because I thought, you know, everybody's in the same business. I learned all this stuff on my own. I mean, I was trained as an actor in front of the camera or, in, you know, in theater, actually. Okay. And, and, and improv. And I, I so but I figured out all that stuff by myself and I learned on the fly and I figured everybody else should have that opportunity, too. And I wasn't going to make anybody else's life easier and and possibly help somebody that could take a job that that I would want right. or that I'm just as right for. So I didn't feel like it was right to do t for the competition. Okay. And and it was it was very competitive. And th the difference in what I do for the writers and poets is that they're not they're not they're not competing with me directly in voiceover. Right. And they actually deserve all the tricks that I've actually learned through through selling people things that they quite frankly shouldn't even own. And the way I got involved with this is that. Um, my uh, uh, wife at the time uh, was involved in uh, the Penn Emerging Voices Fellowship. Okay. And she asked me to come and sit through some readings. And I was horrified. <laughs> okay. What, what are we talking about? Like, uh, yeah, this is yeah. sometime like 2002. Okay. And, um, and this, is, this is not before, before the Penn thing that yeah. she got involved with, I got drugged to some of these readings. And okay. I heard people read prose, and I heard people read memoirs, and I heard people read poetry. And maybe one person did a semi-okay job. Okay. And I and I, I was like, wow, these people are performing this in, in public, in front of people. <laughs> you know, um, they could do it so much better if they just, you know, had a, a, just a little bit of understanding about what they're doing. And if they knew that they didn't need to be nervous, you know, about it, right? Like they're like like everybody always is. And so, when she went through the pen thing, she was like, "Would you talk to the rest of my? You know how it is, the how yeah. tight the yeah. EV fellows become." Totally. She's like, "Would you would you help all my EV fellows to read their stuff better? Because we've been listening to them, and we know that I know that you would you would help them, you know." Be, read their work a lot better and okay. i was like i at that time i had had my own studio for a couple of years uh so i had all the equipment to do it yeah and so i was like yeah bring over on a sand uh, saturday and i sort of knocked out a version of helping everybody and i stuck everybody in the booth and i had them read a little bit and then i had them listen to it and they were there you know their eyes got all big and and then I, I went and I listened to them read and I and I heard the difference that I that that we'd made just by giving them a couple of tips, uh, letting them think about some things a little bit differently, and right. sort of setting them up a little bit for success. Yeah. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was really amazing. I got really really excited about it, and I was like, "This is fun." And it's been 16 years. This yeah. uh, this last time that we did it at uh, Kevin's studio, at Mai Tai Studios in Burbank, was. Um, uh, the 16th time I've, I've done it. So why don't you, we're going to talk about Evie a lot, but like, why don't you tell us how your origin story as an artist, where you came from, how you ended up in LA and how you ended up in Mariposa. I was, my dad was in the military. So I grew up on military bases and constantly moving. By the time I was in the 12th grade, I'd been to 13 different schools. 
Okay. So so I was sort of, you know, by the time I was in the seventh grade, I, I knew that if we moved again, I could, if I didn't like the kind of people that I was with, I knew I could just redesign myself for a new group of people in the next thing, and I could be whoever I wanted to be. Right. Then I started falling in love with uh, entertainment, you know, and my mom wanted me to grow up and be a rock star. She said, I see you in front of a microphone, and you're singing to millions of people. Okay. What did your mom do? <laughs> my mom was um, first-generation American. Her parents were both immigrants from Sicily. Okay. Uh, they came over in, uh, right before the beginning of the Second World War. Okay. And they, they came into New York City, and then they went all the way across the country and settled in Oakland, California. Okay. And then she met my dad, who was... Uh, came from a coal mining town in West Virginia, okay. 250 people. There were 13 kids in his graduating class. Right. And um, he escaped when he was 17 into the Army Air Corps. And he was a navigator bombardier. And he was stationed for a brief time in Oakland. And my mom and him met. They fell in love. That was pretty much it. So they, so yeah. they weren't performers, or were they? No, no. My mom is very, very creative. Okay. Um, immensely so. I mean, she she wrote a book uh, when we were kids wow. about living in Guam that was very funny with a cartoonist. She did all the all the copy and he did the cartoons, and those were big big thing in the sixty the mid sixties late sixties. And then um, uh, she was a painter, um, and she was really really quite talented. She used to. Uh, paint um, sailing ships. Wow! And they were, they were. It was a magnificent. And I used to watch her put them together. And she was also brilliant in the kitchen. And and she was very artistic about pretty much everything she does. And, right. And 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 did. And that sort of had a. So when I started showing some artistic interest, uh, you know, in art class and stuff, and, and with instruments and playing around with stuff and dancing and stuff, she, I was encouraged. And by the time I was in, when 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 I moved to Riverside, if, when my dad got stationed out at March Air Force Base in Riverside, um, I got involved with the speech team in my junior year of high school. And in one year, I won more 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 points than anybody else had in the entirety of the history of the high school. And I got bored. Okay. Um, and then I, I was decided I walked by the theater and there was one of my friends from the speech team over there. And he, I said, what are you doing over here? And he was like, I'm auditioning for a play. And I was like, a play? That sounds like fun. And he was like, yeah, well, the, don't do any auditions because I really want this part. And I was like, really? What part <laughs> is it? I'll get that. <laughs> and uh, and I ended up getting it. it was John in Lion and Winter. And uh, my my acting coach, the the guy who directed that, it was the drama coach at high school for my junior and senior year. His name was Richard Rossi. And he taught for another eight years after I left high school. And then he went to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival and became one of the directors up there and performed regularly in the theater up there. And most of the tricks and a lot of what I share with everybody, it came from Richard Rossi. Okay. And he was a brilliant five foot two inch actor that used to wear boots with huge heels in them so he could be a little bit taller than the kids that he taught. And he was scary as could be, but I learned things from him that 
um, I've gotten brilliant jobs because I learned them from Richard. I knew, I knew exactly what they were asking for. And I, I gave them, you know, better than what they, they expected. And it was all because of the stuff that I learned. And it was stuff like, like the cork and the vocal mm-hmm. exercises and the simple things like physically warming up before you go on and perform your piece. You know, it's like you're going to go stand in front of an audience and you're going to read from a book, but you need to shake your body awake. You need to make sure that your whole, uh, your whole physical self is like almost ready to play baseball. And that's a lot of what reading a really good read does, you know, and I tell people this all the time. Atmosphere is the best thing to set up, you know, Um, because people love atmosphere and atmosphere is a great thing to describe in prose or poetry or whatever. And and it's not, you know, everybody always wants to do conversations. And I I did stand up comedy and uh, I was on tour for a while. I used to open for Robin Williams at the Holy City Zoo. Um, and I used to perform at these places called Chuck Cellar and all these cool places up in San Francisco and down in LA at the, mm-hmm. the comedy store and the improv and laugh factory and all that crap. But I started thinking about talking about people and, always wanting to read conversations and how oh, you yeah. think it's and a I bad idea. Impersonations in yeah. My act. yeah. And, and you know, I'm really good at impersonations. I'm really good at voices and it's, it is a really, really difficult thing for me to actually pull off. Um, I've only done it professionally a very few times. And even then they always tried to talk me out of not doing it. Right. The only place where I really got away with it was King of the Hill. And, and that was after I'd done numerous, numerous shows with them and they were strapped for time. And I was like, let me do both characters at the same time. And it was two characters that were having a conversation with each other. Yeah, two characters having a conversation with each other in the script. It was only like uh, one character had three lines, the other character had two lines. Okay. And they were both Texans, and they both had to sound like different people, and they were afraid that I wouldn't be able to sound different from myself. And, you know, and of course, everybody was just sort of gobsmacked when I did it. They were like, I'm doing that. Right, right. And and it was only it was only a total of five lines. Okay. So you yeah. always tell people when you see EVs in, cause I've been there, I think the last three or four yeah, years, you tell them not to read conversation. Yeah. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to sell the book. Right. And you know, it's kind of like when you try and sell a bar that you want to take everybody to for a fun time, you describe the atmosphere. You don't, you don't, you, you know, maybe you might add, yeah, cool people come in, but the place itself is cool. And, 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 when you describe an atmosphere that, you know, whatever's going to happen, and, and you can do that with your voice, um, it, it, you are actually, people are people are more inclined to buy it because they are like, ooh, I like the way that place sounds, and I want to spend some time there. Right. You know, and, and you want to do a really, because great reads sell books. Right. Oh, my gosh. The most graphic experience of that in my life was early on I got invited up to the UCLA book fair. Okay. This author came in and he writes those romance novels. Okay. That you see in the stand uh, by the checkout stand at grocery stores. Right. The tent around this guy was packed. They had lifted up the walls of the tent so that everybody outside, there was people stacked eight deep on the outside of the tent. And he was on a microphone, and you could barely hear him because there were so many people packed up around. <clears throat> he was very personable. He knew his audience was his friend. 
and they had been thinking about Nan for a long time, so he really didn't have to try. All he had to be was himself. Right. And he just kind of got up, and he had a good time, and he, 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 he told a couple of mad jokes, and everybody laughed. I thought it was great. And I kind of went over, and I listened to him for a while. I kind of pushed my way through the crowd so that I could hear him read, and he did a really good read. And at the end, he must have signed 300 books and sold those 300 books at the fair right there. You know what it's like. Yeah, yeah. And people were pushing people to get next in line. They wanted one of his books with his signature, and it was. And I was like, man, oh, man. You know, if, if a good writer read a really great piece, he could sell a lot of books. He could really make a difference in the world. And I was like, that is a worthwhile thing for me to do with all the things that I've learned. And that's how I, that's why I got into Penn. Right. And I have met so many cool people. And then, and then Natasha Dion, uh, probably my, that's probably my best story. Right. She's your baby. She's your vocal well, baby. I mean, it, it was just so graphic. Um, she came in as an EV fellow and she was reading the sex scene. Yeah. And, and, and I'll never forget, I looked around at everybody in my loft and I said, is, this is a sex scene, isn't it? And everybody was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody was nodding their heads like, yeah, of course it's a sex scene. You don't get that? And I'm like, oh, God. I was like, this is not going to work. And I stood up and everybody just like sat up a little bit and was like, oh, my God. And I went in and I asked Natasha, I was like, is this? Is this really, is this the sex scene? She was like, yes. And I was like, then have sex. Mm -hmm. And she was like, I beg your pardon. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, if you read this the right way, everybody should reach for a cigarette when you're done. Right. Six months later, I get a call from Natasha at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I look down on my cell phone and I see it's Natasha Dion. Now, the last time I remember getting her phone number or talking to Natasha was like at the EV thing. She was like, because I made the same offer I do with everybody. I was like, you can always get my phone number. You can always get my, my email address. If you have any questions, you can you consider me as a resource to come back and ask questions. You know, if you have a line, you don't know how to feel it out. You can call me up. We'll work it out really quick and you're back on your way. Right. She calls me and I'm like, is Natasha, is everything all right? She's like, yes, I just, I had to call you right away. And I was like, well, what's wrong? She was like, I just read my piece. And I was like, yeah, uh, uh, where are you? She was like, I'm at the Kennedy Center. I was like, was it a full house? She was like, yes, everybody, there was people sitting in all the seats. I was like, what happened? She was like, I was, she was like, well, after I got done reading, it was quiet. And I said, what happened next? And she said, everybody stood up. Yeah. I was like, you killed it. Now you know what it's like. That's your new default. And yeah. you've heard me say that a lot of times. Yeah. And not half an hour after she hung up with me, the person that was on the top of her list of who she dreamt of always wanting to be, have her book published by, walked backstage and said, hi, I want to publish your book. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. That, that is why writers need to read well. Yeah. I mean, it didn't just change her life. Her book 
changed other lives and everybody got a, you know those people got a chance to change their lives because she did a really great read early on in her career and she learned you know just a few things that helped set her up for success that she would never have known or probably i mean it's such a bizarre discipline it's like quantum physics it's all simple stuff the audience is your friend they they, they want you to do a read that crushes them emotionally you know I, and I always tell that to my students if you can do a read where you start crying and then the audience starts crying and the audience is still sniveling when you get done I mean that is everything that's it you know if you don't have a book to sell when you get done with that read people will stay in touch with you so that when you do they'll be able to get that book right do you, what do you think about, um, this idea that like you were saying, um, this was kind of your way of giving back when you, you know, in a large part of your career, you're selling things that you don't necessarily think are that necessary for people's lives. Do you think that part yeah. of being an artist is like that, that system of checks and balances? You make that kind of, um, compromise. Yeah. You know, I mean, you do it. Yeah. We all do it. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody I've had on the show, my radio show yeah. does it. Um, we try to mitigate it and then we try to throw ourselves into things that really do give back, you know, like raising a foster kid. Yes. Yeah. One of, probably one of my greatest accomplishments. Right. Outside of my own life. And, and that, that was a huge growing thing for me. I learned, you know, I learned the real power is when you can advocate for somebody other than yourself. Right. Then you can, then you can hold like real power. That's. One of the things that writers get to do... Can you say that's part of moving to Mariposa, too? Because you not only did it for yourself, but you have this dream of creating this artist's residency and it being a, a place to create for a yeah. variety of artists. So talk yeah, about that. I mean, I've always wanted to... You know, I mean, I'm at my absolute best and happiest when I'm surrounded by artists from multiple disciplines. Um, I love to be in that soup. And already somebody has got a piece of land and, um, you know, we're trying to hook up and start to organize, uh, putting it together. But the only way for me to be able to do that now is, is for me to continue to work on my process. And my process is to, to develop a word of mouth about, um, what it's like to create art up here. I, on the Hollywood and Hollywild.com website, uh, you'll find um, essays and performed essays. And when I say performed essays, I'm not meaning just standing up in front of a mic and reading an essay. Um, these are sort of cinematically scored essays. It's kind of like really exceptional old radio. How... Is your um, relationship kind of oh. with the page different uh, now that oh, you're wow. writing essays? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, I used to teach people how to read work after, you know, it was already on the page. And I didn't really know what it was like to write and then read your own work. And then when I, I, when I came up with the idea for art, the, having the artist enclave up here, I knew that I was going to have to learn how to write. And I've been working with writers now for 15 years. And I was staring at good writing, and I was reading a lot more in those 15 years. And when I moved up here, I, start, I had a lot of extra time, and I read a lot. I was learning 
uh, more than I was just reading for pleasure. And um, I started working with a friend of mine who was a really good editor, and she did a lot of work for uh, quality um, and assurance at, at, at the, on the NBC webpage. Okay. So she's, I know, I know a little bit more about what's going on. It, it hasn't really changed my approach to my students. Okay. But I know a little bit more about what they're feeling, and their desire to pick up that pencil has become even more clear. Um, because every time you make a little change, it's hard to remember. And I'm a master of going into the studio and somebody giving me 60 seconds worth of copy that's really 70 seconds worth of copy. So they need me to read it faster, but make it sound slow. Right. And, um, and then they start making changes and I've had as many as, you know, 10, nine or 10 changes in a single take. And then I've been able to actually redo the take on the next record. But that's not normal. You're always telling uh, no, people no, not no, to no, do that. You know, no, that's not normal for anybody. And it's a skill that's taken years and years and years to develop. But, you know, people, will, will, uh, writers and, you know, and EV fellows are always trying to make corrections in their, their script, their copy, their prose or poetry or whatever it is. Uh, Right before they go on stage. Right. And then they... and So it, no changes. It, no changes last minute is what you're saying. And you've yeah, always no said. no changes. Not even last minute, but no changes the week before you're going to go up and perform. You know, if you come up with a change, write it down on a separate piece of paper. Find a way to do the way that you're doing it right now so that you can lock in your performance. Right. Because the more that you can be comfortable when you're actually in front of people, the more energy you'll be able to put forward towards performance. And how do you get comfortable? And, what are the best ways to get comfortable? The, the, the best way to get comfortable is to rehearse, 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 rehearse. Right. You know, and, and that means play with your copy. Read it as a drunk person. Read it as an old lady. Read it as an old man. Read it as a young boy scout. Read it as a scientist. Read it as a newscaster. All these different reads will give you insight into something. Yeah. It may only be one word, but if it is the right word and it's the word that you candy up and you you treat with special gloves and say with special love, um, that's worth doing an extra 40 hours of work if you end up selling thousands of books because people can relate to it in a way that they never could before. Right. And so that people understand, talk about what you do for the EVs on their day in the voice class. So they go into the yeah, sound so they, booth. They get there. We sort of meet everybody. Um, you talk uh, a lot. We should point that out. But that's just your thing. You talk a lot. Yeah, well, you, there's a lot of information. And the stage and the microphone and the studio are all uh, really, really big, powerful points in life. Right. Um, they're, 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 they're probably really as close to the same kind of power that you experience when you stand right on the edge of the ocean at the beach. You're experiencing, you know, on a sunny day, you're experiencing all of the elements right on there. It's, there's a lot of energy in that. And so there's a lot of things that people need to understand to not feel scared about that and realize that they're just, they're just tools that are there to aid them in their, in their setup for success. Right. And, and so talk a little bit about you know how to deal with being sick and 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 reading in public how to set yourself up a couple of days before so that 
you, you don't over-rehearse and waste energy that you need to use getting well. You just familiarize yourself and imagine it in a relaxed state, but you don't lean into it or, or, or um, you do the right kind of exercises or drink the right kinds of things or have the right kinds of foods before you go on stage so that you don't have that you know that piece of spit that floats from the top lip to the bottom lip yeah. and you never know where it's going to go and you can't take your eye off of it and that comes from being nervous excited and you get a dry cotton mouth and you know you, you end up with stuff like that and 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 or clicks in your voice or in your mouth <clears throat> mine's getting a little bit hoarse right now because I, I should have reached for a glass of water but i'm kind of standing out here on my porch and it's really nice and i don't really want to go inside okay um, I just drank some for you. Don't worry. Ah, uh, that's why it felt so good. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, and then I I I give them some tricks, some um, some vocal exercises. I talk uh, to them about how to warm up their body. I give them some some other exercises like cold reading is a really really great exercise. Um, uh, that's where you pick up something that you've never read before and you try to learn how to read. Um, three or four words ahead of what your mouth is actually saying. Okay. So it sounds like you're reading something that you've actually practiced when in truth you're doing what's called cold reading. And newscasters had to become really, really adept at it uh, back when there was a lot more copy and newscasters read a lot more copy. And that's how the teleprompter came around was they, they put a screen out there so that their eyes didn't have to move very much while they were reading. And um, and so it didn't look like they were reading. It looked like they were speaking extemporaneously off the top of their head, and the audiences were amazed. Yeah, it's uh, uh, cold reading is a great exercise. Using the cork is a great exercise. Most writers Tell us what the cork have is. a bottle of wine in their toolbox, and <laughs> you just take that cork, and it doesn't matter if it's those synthetic rubber ones or the actual cork ones, but you, you, you cut it into pieces that are about five-eighths of an inch thick, and then you put the cork um, so that your your uh, it, it, it would be like putting your top teeth on the top of a barrel and your bottom teeth on the bottom of a barrel, mm -hmm. and you just put the edge of the cork in your mouth so that it doesn't interfere uh, too much with your tongue, um, but it does uh, keep your mouth open uh, five eighths to a half of an inch, and then you read your piece. You try to read it as slowly and as perfectly as you possibly can. And what this does is it, it, it over-accentuates your uh, enunciators, uh, your, 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 the things that you use to, uh, to get proper diction. Okay. And, um, and then when you get into reading your piece and you start getting into the atmosphere, when you get into places where you change tone or whatever, you don't have to worry about mumbling your words because your mouth has just been through an exercise where it's been over-exercised. And so it will reach those T's and those P's and those C's and the K's and the L's and the M's with great ease and, and, and much dexterity. And so when you speak comfortably with good diction, it makes it easier for the audience to follow the story. Um, because, you know, you're kind of like walking them down a story and you don't want to set up like little trips where people could catch a step, you know, or, 
or they might miss something because you turn away from their ear. Um, it's a, it's a lot of little things like that. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's learning that you can find a place to be comfortable. And, and there's a lot of people that are still scared about it. And I mean, I have all sorts of, of ways to get around stage fright. And, and some people actually take beta blockers. I mean, I know. I did that, that for my final reading. Yeah. When I found out, I was shocked, you know. Okay, so Matt, let's close out and get into the room. So you give them all these, you give them all these hints and, uh... And then they go home and they work on them. But, yeah, but you just skipped over a whole bunch. Oh, no, no, yeah, I did. Well, I put them in the booth. So you put them in the booth, they read one time, you pull them back out, and you tell them basically how they fucked up. Let's well, be honest. It's not, it's not how, how, they, how they messed up. It's, it's actually, it's more like I show them how they could look at something different so that when they read it, it sounds better. Right. Like, for example, you know, I'm always telling people to have a really, really strong, clear vision of what it is they're going to read. Now, if a writer doesn't have that when he writes it, they can never write anything good. But somehow they sort of abandon that process once the words are on the page, and then they're looking at fudging it, you know, or surrounding it with words that make it have more impact. And and they, they forget the initial part of the creative process which was that image that they write from right and so what i'm always trying to get them to do is contact that image or make up a new image for just even that one section of a sentence those three words have an image behind it and the more the more graphic the image the more power the words will carry right. you know it's like um you know it, you can say f off to anybody and you can make it sound like i love you or you can make it sound like i hate you Right. Or it can make it sound like you're just a putz. Right. And, you know, and I share that famous story about that, that Swedish artist that read that brilliant story. And it was on, I saw it on film. She read a story to a house of maybe 10,000 people. Okay. The audience was completely enwrapped in the story, just enwrapped. Just, just, nobody spoke Swedish in the audience. And this woman was telling the, the entire story in Swedish. And at the end, everybody stood up and applauded, and they were like, oh, my gosh, this is such an incredible, moving story. And she starts speaking in English to the crowd. She's like, really, what was the story about? Because you guys speak English. You, you don't even speak Swedish. And they were like, well, it was, it was obviously about a man and a woman that were in love, and they had a child, and he went off someplace, and he died. And, and now she looks at the child and sees her husband and the child. Is, and everybody's like, yes, that's it, that's the story. No, he was in the army, yeah, and he died in the army, yeah, 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 that's, that's it. And then finally somebody asked, what is the name of the story, the book that you were reading that has this incredible story in it? She was like, this is a Swedish phone book. She was reading addresses and phone numbers and names and telling a story about a man and a woman and making a child and the man dying and everybody got the story so it's like which is not to say that words are not important it rather says when you combine these kinds of techniques with words that are important it starts to have the gravity that literature deserves that's a beautiful way to end, I think, Dave Thomas. I kind of thought so, too. I yeah. Just, this is the end of the spot. You're such a genius when it comes to that. 
You know, and this is why all those Evie fellows are like, David, you should write. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you've come over to the dark side. Yes, I am, uh, you know, uh, and your audience should know that I, I did play a dark Sith Lord in the Star Wars saga uh, in a fan film that was approved by Lucas. Yeah, and I play a 2,000-year-old dark Sith Lord that is the guy that created the Jedi lightsaber. I love the segue. You're and, like, yeah, I'm a writer, uh, yeah. but I'm also a, a dark Sith Lord. Well, I have my, I know you have art running around there somewhere, and I have George. Yeah, I gotta go feed these two fawns that just showed up. Well, George is breathing down my neck, trying to get out of my boiling hot room. So I'm gonna say bye, and thank All you right, so thanks much. thanks for having me for the podcast. Of, really of course. Bye, Dave Thomas. I love you, bye. and believes that freedom of expression and literature are inseparable. Visit pen.org to learn more about what we do. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Join us. Be a part of the larger conversation. Support for EV comes from sources both big and small. Serious financial support comes from organizations like the Amazon Literary Partnership, California Arts Council, New Balloon and Catapult, Los Angeles County Arts Commission, the Ovation Foundation, Pasadena Literary Alliance, the Rosenthal Family Foundation, and UCLA Extension Writers Program. And let's not forget individuals like Jamie and David Wolf. We appreciate you. To the emerging voices themselves, this podcast is in support of everything you do and everything you've accomplished. Congratulations. We celebrate you. Thanks to 2012 EV Johnny Alfie for giving us our theme song, Linen, from his band, Tony and Johnny. And to the members of the Los Angeles literary community who have been showing up for us for more than 20 years, donating their time as mentors, committee members, author evening hosts, and masterclass instructors, I have leaned on each and every one of you for advice, and I appreciate you. You've been there to answer my questions, those of the fellows, as well as the questions of prospective applicants. You've written letters of recommendation, introductions, outreach essays, and blog posts. You've encouraged EVs to read at your events and said yes when we've asked you to read at ours. And to Dave Thomas, everything we know about public speaking, we learned from you. This is all just to say, thanks LA, sincerely.